Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Stolen Signs podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Kendall Gilmet here with Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Harry. Hello, everyone. Number 11. Ours goes to 11. Yes. Mandatory joke. I'm trying to think of any players that were number 11. Can't think of any off the top of my head. Like 11 was always my favorite number. Um, and there pretty much aren't many players. It's usually not. It's not a popular number. No, it's not. I can't. Oh, well. There you have it. But this is our 11th episode. It is. <laughs> what uh, <laughs> uh, you Darvish. Where's n- number oh, 11? For uh, the... The, oh, sweet. All right, welcome to episode Darvish. Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, wow. Off to a great yeah. start. We're going to get a lot of, like, please stop ad-libbing and... All right, so yeah, this is this is uh, we're we're doing how we're doing a bunch of things today. We are. We're very busy. Um, yeah, it's the middle of the World Series. Where this game two is on right now. It's a spot on the seventh inning. It's three to one. Yes. Uh, well, yes. Does it? Well, I saw the guy go to second, but how do you go to third? Okay. Um, so things aren't going super well for our friends with the Astros right now. But that's no, sadly they, they get to go home soon and play there. So, so that's you know this is good. Baseball's still on, yes. um, but we're also looking back at a couple of things. Yes, but before we, we look back, about, yeah. let's get in touch with us if you would like. Um, our We're on Twitter, at stolen underscore signs. You can email us, stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. Rate and review us on iTunes and um, say hello. So, yes, today we are going to be talking uh, with Jarrett Seidler a little bit later on uh, from Baseball Prospectus Prospect Team and also host of the um, Baseball Prospectus Mets podcast. Um, and we'll be talking with him about um, things being old, things being new, and um, that kind of stuff. And then right now, before that, we're going to talk about um, bullpens. There's been in relief pitching and starting pitching. There's been a lot yeah. of lot of talk in the past few years, and then specifically coming into the playoffs about bullpenning and and uh, uh, bullpenning and that type Hasht- of stuff. Hashtag, hashtag bullpenning. bullpenning. So uh, we're going to talk about um, relief pitchers and how one kind of becomes a relief pitcher and what that might mean and what that might look like. So, yeah, I mean, there was, I had all sorts of ambitious questions. Like why, I think there were four we had like typed out, like these are the four research questions for the episode. And, uh, so we got one of them, which is two fifty, not bad, not terrible. Uh, so, so the first question on our list was, uh, like I, I even wrote it into the question, like we're not gonna be able to do this, but, so if we'd known that if guys were drafted uh, as relief pitchers, I thought that'd be interesting. Uh, yes. Any of those guys, you know, but it didn't, you know, like, you know, certain, we know of certain guys who were early round draft choices that occasionally, you know, it happens where it's like, you know, he's a relief pitcher. Drew Storm, I think, was the yep. 10th pick by the Nats. The same year they picked Strasburg one. They picked Storm 10 straight to the bullpen. Um Tony Zeke, who's actually made it with the Mariners, I think. Yep. yep. Uh, he was a Cubs pick. At, I want to say Tennessee. I'm not 100% or you know, he, he was a college relief pitcher and was thusly 
drafted and expected to be kind of a fast mover. It didn't quite work out, but he, he did make it. Uh, but then you had guys like Marcus Stroman, who relieved, started, and played infield, I think, at various times at Duke. And, you know, he, there was questions whether he would turn into a starter, and he did, despite his size. So there's, you know, I, I kind of, this this is a much bigger research project than, you know, than it it should be. <laughs> so but could, what we have to do is look at, like, collegiate data and see, do these guys come out of the bullpen and turn into starters in the majors? Because that's kind of the question is, is everybody, every, everybody talking about relief pitchers are failed starters. I mean, some guys just come in as relief pitchers uh, and they are, that's who they are. And it became kind of interesting to me about the, the question that ended up being the most fun to look at of our list was guys who came into the majors as a relief pitcher and significantly played, you know, that role. So David Price, for example, doesn't quite make the cut. He's like just under, but Chris Sale does. So guys who worked out of the bullpen before they became starters, you know, do, right. do they exist right. in baseball? And it was they're surprisingly, it's surprisingly uncommon for a guy to really come up as a relief pitcher. I'm mm-hmm. not just talking about like a September inning or two, but like actually come up, work as a relief pitcher, and then eventually become a starter. And yeah, there's 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 a hundred different ways to slice it. And you're not what talking about like a spot starter. You're like, yeah, this is a guy's starting. Yeah. What was our rule like? They had in their in their debut season, and so this is going to cut. You know, this isn't as smart as it could be either. Like we could be a cumulative. Like if the guys over his first two years or something, but it's like just whatever the guy's debut season in Major League Baseball. I think he had to have at least 25 innings of relief, and less than that as a starter. Okay, so whatever he was as a relief pitcher, he did. So it could be really close, like 50-50. So some of these guys, yeah, they may be shady. There's just kind of, you know, this is this is the, the damn lies part of, you know, the, uh, lies, damn lies and statistics, you know, thing. This yep. is the, the statistics part of it, where it's like these pitchers of this this number of pitchers depends on how like, to define it. So 25 innings as a relief pitcher. Then I think it was 75 innings, some any subsequent season as a starter. Right. Uh and then, like, so that that ball back since 1950, only, like, 162 players. And if you do kind of the other way around where guys came in as a starter and eventually went to reliever, and you, I literally came up with 1,200, with, a, like, 1,182 or something like that. So there's – and that even that was not – you know, it was overly constrained. Like, it's much more common to come up to the major leagues as a starting pitcher and go to relief pitcher. Um than right, it is to come into the majors as a reliever and become a starter. So it's either you come in as a reliever and you stay there, you come in as a starter and you end up in the bullpen. And that's but, like the washed out, like you wash out and you go to the bullpen. Like that's kind of... It might not be washed out. You know, there's some guys who are selected for the bullpen, so they're converted right. into the bullpen already in the minors, okay? So that's another thing. It's like it's seen, okay, you're not going to be a starter. You're double A. You're, you're, you're no longer in the rotation. So these are guys who, you know, the idea is that these you know, these guys made it all the way, you know, to the majors as a starter and then fell to relief. That That's super common. But the other path, it really wasn't. And then when I cut it down to guys who actually totaled up more starting innings than relief innings in their career, so guys who went to reliever, to starter, then back. There's some cool names in that list, like Mike Marshall, Goose Gossage, I think, Joseph Biagini. 
so <laughs> he's there as well. Uh, he's you know he's now a starter, but he came up as a reliever. He hasn't accumulated enough starting innings to make my final list. But there's uh, 118 guys in you know 60, 70 years of baseball that and that's the, made the switch that ended up having more starting innings than relief innings, right? Yeah, and some of these guys, like, the, the difference is huge. I mean, yeah. um, Jim Palmer. Yeah, that's the name that, that kind of stuck out to me that was like, whoa, All right? Cool. So these are guys, remember, who, like, were somewhat, you know, in historians, and you can go pull up, you know, your player cards and look and, and keep or throw away any of these guys that say, no, Harry, that doesn't fit. But it's it's rare. Like Jim Palmer started in relief pitcher, Mark Burley, Chuck Finley, David Wells, Rick Wise, David Cohn, Kenny Rogers, Jimmy Key, Camille Pasquale, who's actually the, has the highest warp total of anybody on the list, uh, Andy Messersmith, Woody Williams, Jason Marquis. Okay, so that's, you know, that's just a sampling. Okay, now there's some really, really good pitchers, like really good pitchers on this list. Like Jim Palmer. Crescent. Yeah, Paul, I'm going to repeat, but the guys who were the best, you know, like, since there's guys with different career lines here, it just kind of normalized warp to 200 innings. So, okay. like, for sales, the best at that. Uh, Johan Santana. I've heard of these guys. Yeah, well, Wells comes up again. Uh, he was, you know, Steve Ontiveros, who I think was one of the guys who got overused. In Billy Ball era, mm-hmm. Jimmy Key, Jeff Fasero, Pascal, again, David Cohn. Now it, it it doesn't happen very often. There's only like a few guys a year who actually do this, and so the guys who debuted, it's like J.C. Ramirez. He came up with the Phillies as a reliever like four years ago, and he got up. You know, he's a starter now. So he he's like the most recent guy to do it. So Aaron not all these guys. Aaron Sanchez, Carlos Martinez. So that's three guys in the three years. Now Biagini Biagini may may stick on this list over time, but right now he's kind of off on the side on the not quite fully qualified. So it's basically like one guy a year. Um, 2012, there's like a bumper crop. But th- these are some cool names. So Sanchez, Martinez, people will remember these guys bullpen. Yep. Brandon Workman. Yeah. Tyson Ross, Andrew Kashner. I remember. I remember. I was actually at his first start and only started as a Cub with the day he got hurt. Oh yeah. Another Cardinal, Lance Lynn, Hector Noesi, who I think is now back into the bullpen, so he may over time fall out of this list. He's got some space. Chris Sale, Jeff Samarja, 2012. Those guys both came up. Uh, you know, Samarja in 2008, Sale in 2010. By 2012, they were starters. And they both have accumulated over 1,200 innings as a starting pitcher. So those two, C.J. Wilson, Chris Medlin, Brandon Morrow, now back in the bullpen. So there's like, you know, these are actually, these aren't random, like, guys. Right. Are, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of guys who, it seems like, as I'm just, like, looking down this list, there's some oh, some guys who are just, um, like you're saying, some guys that are standout, awesome Chris Sale guys. But there's also, like, Carlos Silva, who's like, well, yeah, he can fill out your rotation if you want. Um, but, you know, like he's kind of four or five starters who, um, 
yeah. the guys on the list, like, look, there are a bunch of many, many more name brand pitchers yeah. than there are on the list of guys who debuted as a starter and slid away to relief. Oh, because, really? Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's just, the, the, this is a, you know, I even look at like average stats for these guys. So the, the guys who um, are in this group of, of 118, their, their career warp total average each guy for their career is 11. And for the group of guys who's not quite there on this list, they've, they've changed the starter or did at some point, but converted back or haven't qualified. They, they average five, but on a, on a normalized basis, that's career. That's how much. So these guys had careers. Um, the guys who are stayed firmly put as starters, their per 200 inning warp was 1.9 on average. That's good. Yeah. Like the average, and in the other group, that's this reliever was like 1.1. And then the other, well, let me see if I have I, I, The guys who went from start to relief, which will include a guy like John Smoltz, Kurt Schilling, and there's some weird ones. Like if this is badly filtered, um, they average like 1.3. So they're good too. Um, but they were called up on bad teams also. Something interesting. Yeah. These guys who were called up as relief pitchers and eventually became starters, the, the winning percentage of their teams during that season where they were relievers debuted was 510. The other group that debuted as starters and eventually became relief pitchers in some fashion or other, they debuted on teams that had a 483. Wow. It's a pretty big, so, pretty big. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's not, it's kind of weird and random too, but it's, it, it's, so here's the theory, the, the narrative behind this. You have a pitcher who is going to be a good starter and you know it, but you're on a good team. You want to get some work out of him in the bullpen uh, and production before he's fully blossomed as a starter and you think you can get away with it. So the David Price thing, you know, right. uh, most of these guys were, were on, so it kind of it kind of fits the mold, and again, you'd have to go through all 120 guys and, and look up their life stories to figure it out. Um, but it seems to me that you have—I mean, even the guys from 1954, there's like two guys in the '54 Indians, including Don Mossy, who people will know for his ears, uh, went on to be good starters. They they were bought up young, debuted as in their bullpen for a very good team. So even in the '50s, and you know, it, so it, there's this definite tendency for it to be guys who were. Well, you know, on winning teams, went on to be good starters, and were mostly low round draft picks for like those who were drafted. Like the, the 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 trend is like you know there were six guys who were in the out of the whole 160, I think we had six first rounders, six second rounders, six third rounders, and no other round had higher total than that. Now, of course, most players that make the major leagues are from that pool, but it just goes to like this. You know, these aren't like it's just the whole picture that that kind of got painted. It's like it's very unusual for a guy to come up as a reliever and then become a successful starter. And, and when it does happen, it seems like he's a pretty good pitcher pitching for a pretty good team. There's tons of exceptions. There's tons and tons of, you know, painting with hugely broad strokes here. But that tends that seems to be the uh, the guys who swim upstream in that regard, at least at the major league level. Teams don't 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 often do this, but it happens. It's not a lot. 
So, I mean, this is this is an interesting thing, and uh, you know, as ever, totally a jumping off point to more questions. Mm-hmm. Like, as I think about, like, okay, well, how many of these guys have more than two pitches? How many, you know, like how many of these? Like, what's what is their? I mean, we keep coming back to this. I feel like what is their stuff, and how does that play into it? Um, I think that, I'm going to guess more slider than curveball guys. Yeah, Just right. Guess. Like. <clears throat> But so I'm wrong already just looking at it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that is... That's like a good a, sounding guess. Looks at for now. <laughs> We're going to definitely post this this, this spreadsheet because um, I think the version you have is probably easier to work with. Mine is all hacked up into different pieces. So Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you, you, folks, just... you should, folks should look at this because what we've got in it is the year they were drafted. Just, you know, we just put in stuff. You know, like this sounds cool. Uh, what year they were drafted, what round and pick, all that. Then what year they debuted and with what team, what the winning percentage of that team was. And then without noting what the team was or what the winning percentage was, because just random half-assed research, uh, <laughs> the year they came up as a starter. Then some career information, like how many innings pitched and yeah, and start reliever and, and whatnot. So it it's cool because it's 100 and something, you know, 60-something names only. But there's definitely like probably some story picking to go to. Like, how did these guys go through that path? And right. like, Kenny Rogers is one I'm interested in. You know, okay, how did Kenny Rogers go through that? You know, who who you know Todd Ritchie, twelfth overall pick. You know, like okay, that's an interesting story. You know, there's so there, many there's so many names on here like that. Oh, they kind of like come out, and it's like most of these guys weren't necessarily good, but like. That like um, who, yeah. like Ken or Eric Shaw. It's like Eric Shaw is the guy who hit Andre Dawson in the cheek, um, in like the mid '80s and broke Shao his. That was a sad story. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if then, you don't if you don't know the story, look him up. Not a happy one. Yeah, and then like guys like uh, where was it? Um, Greg Cataray. Like these are just names that like oh my gosh somehow they just are like lodged in my brain. I think he pitched. Oh, dude, this, this is happening to me. Storm Davis. Yeah. Like, I'm totally. just scrolling through this. Yep. Like, and I'm like, holy cow. Uh, you know, there, there's so many, like just very, very, <clears throat> excuse me, interesting guys in here. Rick Mahler. Yep. Chuck Carey. Like all these guys, it's like, yeah, there, there weren't necessarily. It's not Valdez. Good, Victor but... Zambrano and Johan Santana, both. There's some, uh, Korean players, Sun Woo Kim, Byung Hyun Kim. Mm-hmm. Roberto Hernandez, so the you know, Ryan Roland Smith, the Australian man with the hyphen, uh, right. you know, and Perfect. so it's you know it, it's and another sad one, Corey Lytle, yep, uh, Kelvin Escobar, but yeah, there's just you know a ton of like really fascinating pictures on here, and it's like it'd probably be interesting to somebody, so we'll yep. post this. If you find good stories, tell us, email something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, or if you know any other, yeah, if you know any stories or or, or can dig any up, that would be uh, super. Yeah, or guys who just didn't make the list because of my stupid lazy filter, like you know David Price, of course, but other names like that who we missed might be fun to hear. So tweet us, email us, stolen underscore signs at baseball prospectus, or on Twitter at stolen underscore signs. Um, yeah, great. This is awesome, Harry. Thanks for um, working on putting this well, thing together you. kate morrison actually helped me put this together so thanks kate Thank you, kate and um yeah we'll be back after a short break and we're going to talk with 
Jarrett Seidler. All right, everyone. Um, today we have Jarrett Seidler from Baseball Prospectus. He's a staff writer for the Prospects team and uh, also co-host of the Mets podcast on Baseball Prospectus Mets. What's the name of that podcast, Jarrett? For all you kids out there, for which all. is a Keith Hernandez oh, saying. All right. Well, yes, yes, it is. Thanks for coming on, Jarrett. Uh, welcome. Thank you. So we always like to get a little background before we dig into what we're talking about. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how you got into baseball and then how you got into writing and talking about baseball? So I'm like a lifelong baseball fan. Um, I guess one of baseball Twitter's prototypical like failed lawyers in their 30s, basically. <laughs> um so I've been like a lifelong baseball fan. I've like always kind of hung around like the periphery of like the sabermetric type scene. Like I like read like baseball primer back in the day and I read a ton of Bill James and I've been reading BP since like the late nineties. Um, but I never really kind of thought I had that much interesting to say. Um, so I kind of, never really wrote that much. Like I wrote one column for baseball prospectus guestus or whatever the heck that was. For guestus. Like, like that, yeah, yeah. Like 2011 um, with uh, John Bernhard. And I, I, you know, I had some friends, you know, I was friends with Jeff Paranaster and Craig Goldstein and they basically kind of at some point like shamed me into writing basically. And, Jeff needed a permanent podcast partner for when he moved his podcast to VP. So I got dragooned into that. And now I'm a staff writer and actually get paid to do stuff, which is cool. And you're no longer uh, lawyering, or are you still? No, I'm a uh, system administrator now, actually. That's a natural transition. Well, I was a system administrator before I was a lawyer. So <laughs> it turned out I could actually make more money doing that with a lot less effort and a lot less like stress on my brain. Like I was just, I don't know. I like graduated law school at like a really bad time to graduate law school. So I was doing like foreclosure defense and like divorce stuff, just like the absolute, like most mentally draining, awful stuff you could imagine. So yeah, I'd much rather just, you know, fix network problems. And then, then think of, think about baseball. Yeah. And I get to think about baseball a lot. So you mentioned Bill James and things of that nature and kind of what we were talking about on Twitter, what I think was last week now was this kind of, I don't know, I think you and I were both on parallel or overlapping rants on a daily basis about, uh, <laughs> there's just been so much like the curveball revolution or the launch angle revolution, the shift revolution. Uh, there's all these like revolutions in baseball that are like these sabermetrically oriented things or these advanced stats things. And not a not a stinking one of them is new or dependent on technology, even. Yeah, like the whole like fly ball revolution is like the old Ted Williams on hitting books. And the shifting is how teams were defending Ted Williams in the 1940s and 50s. It was called the Ted Williams shift at the time. And pitchers threw a lot more curveballs in those days. 
Yeah, so there's like that. So old time baseball was basically curveball pitchers against five ball pitchers, like what in the 40s and 50s? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you think of like all like the great pitchers of that era, like, you know, Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, mm-hmm. even going up to like Burt Blylevin. Um, God, Nolan Ryan was basically a fastball curveball pitcher for his entire career, his very, very, very long entire career. Yeah, Uh, but it's, yeah, they, I mean, everybody had that kind of, it's a natural thing, right? The high fastball and and then the big 12 to 6 curveball. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, eye level changes of, you know, like the stuff you guys have been doing with tunneling, which I think is really great and interesting research. It's that, but it's but that kind of stuff's been going on for you know basically since they've been throwing the ball overhand and since you know they've been throwing breaking balls, which started in the 1880s. Yeah, um, I mean, the whole concept of disrupting the hitter's timing and changing his eye level, uh, you know, the kind of the which is kind of anti-tunneling, but still it's kind of it's part of you know like there's many ways to pitch and all of them involve these kind of well-worn techniques that come back into vogue. In and out, like just the people are throwing curveballs a lot again. Okay, that's cyclical. It's it's in response to hitters and uh, strike zones and, and something, and then the game will kind of switch back probably, where it goes back to more fastballs again. And someone's going to say that's a sabermetric revolution, also. So with that, like I think in some ways like it's not a sabermetric revolution as much as it is like a sabermetric evolution, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of what you guys are talking about. You're talking about how it's cyclical and all of these things change, but do you think that the, the rate at which those things change um, is affected by like some of the technology that isn't necessarily, these things aren't dependent on, but front offices have more ways to measure them and understand them and therefore can make decisions on them maybe more quickly. I don't know, maybe not, but that's probably the difference is, is the, like with technology, like everybody's like the internet uh, was supposed to go, you know, internet has yeah, having a lot of people have internet ac- access, you know, be able to get online that has definitely had an impact on society, but not all these completely destructive ways that were predicted. But we don't the, have when flying the, cars yet, Harry. Yeah, but the, when the telegraph came out, it was the same thing. And like, there's there's a book that's kind of funny about the history of, at that time of what people were writing about. Like, basically, it was the Victorian internet. Like, you can just replace telegraph with with World Wide Web, and it's it was the same fears and concerns about society's downfall. So it's like with with all these, you know, what what the telegraph did is it made it very fast to communicate over long distances. So with baseball, you know, so you know, communication didn't change, society didn't change, just the speed at which knowledge moved around changed. So for baseball, I think the first thing, information moved faster when you had a larger network of scouts, and then it was moving faster when you had uh, video. So I would say video, you know, is probably the quantum leap in terms of discovering things and seeing things like that and be able to look at things like that. I think video technology was the paradigm shifts and be able to speed to communicate and identify things. And then all the ball tracking stuff is just refinements on top of that, which also make it faster. But I, I think it's analogous to the, you know, telegraph, the telephone to internet. The big change was at the telegraph. 
with baseball, the big change is at video. And, and with video, um, what about video? Was it that, like, I mean, obviously you can see it, but you can see it or you can record it. You can, like, you don't, it's not, it's, it's not. I don't have to be yeah. there to in have firsthand yeah, experience. I mean, Jared, you could probably explain how, like, imagine if you didn't have video. Right. Like, <laughs> I can only see, you know, I, I live in New Jersey. So when I'm covering prospects, I'm covering, I can get the Eastern League. I can get the Sally League. I can get the New York Penn League. I can get the International League. I can get the Carolina League. Those are a little bit more of drives. But, you know, I, you know, we're, we're breaking down our top 101 now. We've got probably like 160 candidates. Uh, out of the 101, I'm going to have, you know, decent updated live looks, probably on 40 or 50 of them. And that's probably about true for, like, you know, Jeff or Craig or um, Wilson, Mark, any of, like, our staff writers. We're only going to have looks at a certain segment of guys. However, I can pull up MILB TV and have and you know look at dozens of games for pretty much any of these guys because at all at all levels even of the minors there's video archives you know MLB TV has been around for 15 years now um, I can pull up any baseball game that's happened in that era which also weirdly tracks with the pitch FX era so I can not only pull up the video of it but I can pull up stuff that happened in it. Like, I remember even, like, going back to, like, when I was a kid, like, you had your local games, like, I had the Yankees and Mets games, and you had, like, two games of the week. You had, like, the Fox game of the week and the ESPN game of the week, or before that, like, the NBC game of the week. You got to live, right the, the, live right in middle Jersey, like, near Princeton, and then you can get I, Philadelphia TV and New York TV. Like, like my grandfather actually did that. Yeah, I actually grew up in Ocean County, so there were times when I had both. Um, but like for the rest of the stuff, you have to watch the late, you have to watch the 10 PM baseball tonight. Um, I remember when USA today came out and it was such a big deal that you got, you could, it didn't always, but it usually had West coast box scores. And that was, you usually got the box score for the West coast games in the Sunday, you know, in the Jersey star ledger on, you know, so for, for Wednesday's West coast games, you get that in Friday's paper. So yeah. when it ha- when the USA Today started coming out that in Thursdays, it was like, wow, I got like, the Dodgers score from last night. <laughs> so like even in like my lifetime, and especially in your lifetime, like this, the amount of baseball you're able to see has just exploded. And that's on the fan side. You know, I guess going to the team side, they would have had availability of video probably going back to like the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. I mean, when did people start having, hand? you know probably just before consumer cams, like the first people to have, you know, they, you know, some guy's uncle probably was, you know, he always had like a super eight or something. There was probably scouts doing that. But as soon as you had handheld like videotape, you know, the, the pretty things got like affordable. So I think teams are happy to like, you know, occasionally give a camera, but I think what happens now is teams set them up. Like everybody's like all their minor league parks, all their backfields are just wired and they can just turn on and see any one of them at any time. And it's not a hundred percent now, but a lot of, I don't know, a lot of teams, a, a minority of teams are actually sending their own scouts on the road with their minor league teams. So they can take like multiple angles, like behind the plate, uh, more of your scouting type video than 
like a TV video. I'm like shocked that every team doesn't do that. Uh, but you know, teams are like weirdly adverse to adding like any kind of expenditure that's not like proven to make a lot of money. Like they'll spend that's very baseball, yeah. Yeah, they'll Slow spend moves. like seven million dollars on their backup loogie, but won't spend sixty thousand to hire a kid out of college to go videotape a bunch of games. Yeah, it's. They're getting better. You know, everybody's a slow follower, but yeah, you know, that's, I mean, baseball is a slow moving industry. So there's still, there's still pickup to happen in video. I mean, and so that's, I think, you know, having all the tracking data, which teams have all the way down to their backfields now and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's just, that also accelerates things accelerates communication and makes it possible for people to do analytical things. And I think what that does is allow you to quantify stuff that, you know, this is, I think, an important point. It's not, you know, that sometimes you know something in baseball and you've known it for a long time. But it might be hard, you know, for whatever reason, for to get certain people from certain schools of thought to adapt to it. So, so it is realistic to me that the launch angle revolution, quote unquote, which is not a revolution, it's going back to something that was, you know, an old older technique was partially spurned by, you know, uh, you know pushed on by this kind of, look, there's data that shows it and, and you can look at it. And teams have been getting that data for a few more years than the public have. Uh, you know, it happened with framing where everybody's known about framing. I think the first, the first written reference of framing that we could find was, I think, around 1920. So, I mean, it's not like that's some news. As soon as there were umpires, there were fr- you know, catchers were trying to frame. And, but what happened was, in, you know, 10 years ago, it got quantified. And People are like, okay, this actually, you know, we have to kind of shift our thinking around how we evaluate catchers because of that. That I think, Kendall, is evolutionary, not revolutionary, because like we, they knew framing was important. They knew that it was a good thing to have, but it turned out that it's a better thing to have maybe for some guys. You know, despite their arm being great, they're such a crappy framer. It's not worth having them on the, on the team. So things can change, and there's and there's new discoveries that happen, and. and this is kind of to the point which I was making just before we, we came on, which is uh, every year there's an article written that says, you know, we, everything is known about baseball, sabermetrics and analytics are either no more new discoveries to be made, which is, you know, kind of silly because we're always refining our knowledge. At the same time, we're also rediscovering things that we knew already. But also, I think this is kind of the point with the framing and maybe the launch angle stuff is the precision like that is like what's different. Like, and th- that gives you that that starts that starts making strategic changes or even just tactical changes for teams. And because it's a fluid market of talent competing for resources, like analytics will never die. You're always figuring out how to maximize and acquire the best resources. So sometimes that's just requantifying or quantifying old knowledge. Yeah, because that's because the game changes. And like as we see now, it's a competition. That's the number one thing. It's right. like it'll, you'll, there'll never be an end of analytical questions because this is a competition. Right. Baseball is competitive. And the guys now who are you know swinging uppercut swinging and all this stuff because they're launching home runs because of that or changing their whatever swing path or so it's like okay well then the pitchers are going to go back this off season and be like how do we beat that how do we well, stop actually it's that? a good I'm glad you bought that up because i wanted to ask jared a question about that because they're actually during that we're it's this is the middle of game two of the world series while we're recording by the way um and the 
John Smoltz made a comment about all these, these. There's a couple guys on the Dodgers in particular who are just like they really swing, two yeah. strikes, whatever, right? And he made a he made a comment. He said, "Yeah, they're more bat speed, but more holes." Yeah. Like, well, right there, that's like for you know. So when you look at a guy swinging like selling out, like I look at these guys and they're selling out, and usually in prospecting that's kind of a negative thing. Now it's like, well, maybe the selling out's okay. But is this an indication that pitchers aren't hitters are gambling on pitchers having bad command? I think there's a little bit of that. I also think that the side effects from sell, from some of these guys, especially like you take like a Chris Taylor or a Justin Turner, like specifically, and those were guys. They, I mean, Chris Taylor is a better prospect than Justin Turner, but they kind of had the same profile. Those were like really, really good contact hitters. And they really had great contact ability as minor league players. They just didn't, or even major league players for a few years in both cases, they just didn't hit the ball very hard. So I like, I wonder, like those guys, I think really haven't lost like their plate selection or their plate coverage so much, even though they're like wildly uppercutting the ball now. And you also get, like this weird thing, and this was noticeable. I, I don't want to say like the leader of the uppercut revolution, but like Daniel Murphy is kind of like the first yeah. guy that everybody went whoa. He's the poster boy for it. There's, yeah. there's it was like absolutely started what two years ago versus a year or this like last year or this year, right? Yeah, it was like it was around the All Star break in 2015, and he had that was the year that Kevin Long came over to the Mets, and Kevin Long has been preaching this stuff for like 15 years now long before anybody listened or cared. And you had like that whole period where he was the Yankees hitting coach and like talk radio would constantly talk about whether the Yankees were hitting too many home runs. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that's, but, such a, that's such a, that's such a sports radio thing. But like the side effect of these are like some of your mishits go for like flare singles or some of your mishits are like, hard ground balls that go through the infield. Like it's not like the batted ball profile is shifting, but they're not really losing like their singles. Like they're just like random singles. Like they're not turning into like Joey Gallo, all or nothing home run. I never single type guys. Um, and that might be very specific to those guys like, uh, Taylor and Turner and Murphy that were really good contact hitters that had very good plate. They weren't guys that walked a ton, but they were guys that didn't strike out a lot and were making contact constantly. They were making bad contact constantly. So it's a matter of the path. I mean, it's not, you take a, you don't start out just swinging hard and uppercutting. Right. You find the guys, you know, because that's going to create holes in your swing, but that's okay to have a little more hole if you have a to add ten percent more power. If you're already a, well above average in terms of ability to you know to manage the strike zone, right? And these were and these are also all guys. And you know, we kind of joke about this, but like a large, large, large percentage of major leaguers have like plus what we would call raw power in batting practice. Like, Daniel Murphy has been putting on batting practice shows since he was in the minor leagues. He could just never convert it into game power. 
So like this was all this kind of stuff was always there for him. I kind of wonder if Ichiro had came over now. Like we always have the apocryphal stories. Like Ichiro always said he could have hit like 30, 40, 50 home runs, depending on what the quote was, but he never tried to. And everybody used to go, ha ha, he's being funny. I'm wondering if he was actually being truthful at the time and he just didn't. I mean, obviously Ichiro was an incredible player doing what he did and you wouldn't want him to change what he did, but you know, maybe that actually was there for him. And he just chose a different path. Yeah, and teams sort have been collecting that that data in batting practice. So they would yeah, they, they turn on TrackMan during batting practice. And uh, I when I'm working on stuff, occasionally I get these data sets. It's you know, here's 200 pitches at 50 miles an hour down the middle of the plate. Oh, okay, that's not that's not <laughs> real good. This is just here for the <laughs> exit velocities and launch. They actually and. and you know, truth be told, it's not just blanket covers. And they clearly just turn it on for certain guys sometimes. Uh, big league parks as well. So, you know, the, there's there's definitely this, uh, you'll know what guys are playing way below their batting practice power. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it, it's, there is definitely an analytic edge to discover who those guys are and then go to, you know, work with them. But you still have to have the coaching, you still have to have the people receptive to it. But I think what the most interesting th- thought here is that these are already guys who have a certain set of skills. And yeah, it's, it's, kind, of like it's kind of like converting guy to a catcher. Right. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, you're basically, when you're converting a guy to a catcher, you're looking for like a stout lower half, a good arm and good hands, basically. It's like you're and, not going to make it at second base, but yeah. you're, you're not going to make it as a contact hitter in this game. But if you learn how to be more of an uppercut hitter, you're never going to not be a contact hitter because that's just your natural athleticism that you just get to the ball. Hmm. This is an interesting theory. I like it. Yeah. And and there's like, there's like weird hitting gurus about this type of stuff. Like Marlon bird has become a hitting guru for like guys that want to uppercut the ball. Like when Marlon bird had that crazy uh, season out of nowhere, everybody just said, yeah, it's gotta be steroids. Right. Mm -hmm. Nope, he actually was on to something. Isn't he the the swing hard? Like, that was the thing that... He just started swinging yeah. super hard like, every, all the time. And swing upper, hard, he's changed swing his swing hard. path. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of like, like... He probably... He's not swinging 110%. Okay, so he's probably always swinging the bat under control at maybe 90%. I don't know, I'm just making this up, okay? But it's like he... <laughs> he you know, if you just add a little bit... Don't give up. Don't reduce on two strikes, and you know like you used to. And then make a little bit of a change in you know the, the alignment of the swing path. That could be a big difference for a guy who was always you know a pretty good hitter. I mean, he was a good baseball player, and he just said the hell with it. And just you could just tell he just swung. It's like you know, it's like pitchers when they come up. It's like swing hard in case you hit it. You know, but these are guys who are actually hitters, and they're doing so- the same. So one of the things is this has been happening in like prospect development. This is like just guys develop their raw power into game power. The weird <laughs> thing that's happening is it's now happening to bad major leaguers and they're turning into superstars. Like that's like this happened to Reese Hoskins. It happened to Cody Bellinger, like when they were prospects and we kind of went, okay, that these were guys that had, you know, 70 raw power and now they have 70 or 80 game power. Like that's something that happens. Like Chris Taylor had like 
minus minus power, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's he swings so hard. I mean, it's like he's going to break his belt every swing. I mean, but he does now. But if you go back to like a year ago, he like was like the softest, slappiest hitter like on the face of the planet. It's like so weird. They just showed a a side by side previously in in game two of uh, an at bat for Taylor when he was on the Mariners, and then one I think from game one or I think. I don't know. It was some home run that he hit. And uh, the one with the Mariners was he was moving all over the place. His hands were, you know, like jumping around. His whole body was moving. And then um, in the one where he hit the home run, it was like a lot more still and just like fierce when he like when he actually swung. So it was a pretty interesting side by side comparison. And, like, everybody keeps trying to ask him for an interesting origin story, and the origin story is, like, literally Justin Turner, like, coming up to him in spring training and going, like, bro, you're not going to have a career. Start swinging harder. Like. Just let the dog eat. Right. Which is exactly what Justin Turner did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, went from, you know, famously non-tendered utility infielder NRI to, you know, I don't know, one of the best 20 players in baseball for like four years running now. Which is another amazing, it's like he could arguably be the poster boy too. But he probably should be. Yeah. But Murphy got, I think got famous first. Yeah. Murphy did. Murphy went completely nuts in the postseason. So yeah, that's what does it. Yeah. Yeah. Now Turner's going completely nuts in the postseason, but it's two years later. So. Yeah, he, is, he, is, he doesn't have the first mover advantage. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's it's just it's wild. Like all of this, you know. You, you mentioned framing a few minutes ago, and there was I would say an eight to ten year period in sabermetric thought from like I don't know, like two thousand one to like two thousand eight or two thousand nine, where the prominent the, the prominent sabermetric people at that time, which are still some of the prominent sabermetric people, but are also a lot of people that are currently in MLB front offices, were, I would say the majority of them were convinced that there was very little defensive value to catching that didn't involve throwing. And then, you know, you start doing research, and Dan Turkentoff started doing research, and Max Marchi started doing research, and Colin Wire started doing research. And it's like, wow, this is actually one of the most important parts of the game that any player can contribute. And so like, I think what happened that happened though, like at the golden age where it right. was a coincidence of all, it was, I, there was a confluence of things that happened and it was definitely changed roster. I mean, people started changing how they do rosters and it's even come up in terms of guys contracts, like arbitration. I mean, like Jose Molina, you know, absolutely. So yeah, so, uh, it did shake some cobwebs. But it, to me, it wasn't new. It was just something that had been just not as widely accepted. So for me, it wasn't like a... Right. But if that's going back to something that I think baseball people had largely accepted, you know, going back a very long way was that you want to have a good defensive catch. You know, you have a good receiver with good hands. And, and, what, good that, and what that meant at that point in time was having a guy who was particularly adept at framing. It might be a little yes. less important now, but at that point, it was a huge advantage. Yes. I mean, the Lou Croy to Ryan Dumit gap was 10 wins, something, some absurd, some truly obscene numbers, you know, in the first couple of years where it was like, you're going in and out of playoffs based on how bad this guy is for your staff. 
So that's no, the other thing that changed. The floor changed, you know. So it's it's hard. The, the gap changed. There's there's no major league team that would play Ryan Dumas at catcher. In yeah, exactly. The floor, yeah, the floor increased. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, even guys, you know, your more marginal guys, like you know, like your Kyle Schwarber's get converted off of catcher, and that's a guy. I think 15 years ago, that 25 teams would have caught. And now it's not very many, if any. Yeah, exactly. It's, so I guess there are things new. To, there's new applications of old ideas. Maybe that's okay. That's a very good way to put it. I like that. Way to wrap it up, Harry. Perfect. So, <laughs> perfect, yeah. So, all right. Uh, so you can find uh, Jarrett on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Jarrett? J.A. Seidler. S-E-I-D-L-E-R. And uh, you can read his work at Baseball Prospectus. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Go enjoy the rest of the game. Because everything old is new again. All right, welcome back. Uh, thanks again to Jarrett Seidler for coming on. And um, now we're going to talk a little bit about what we learned this week. Harry, what I, feel like I, learned, I feel like I learned like a lot just there, Jared. Yes. Um, but what I learned this week was uh, was looking over Kate Morrison Schuller, where she was helping out Ben Lindbergh's research on Dallas Keuchel and how he matched up against the Dodgers in yesterday's Game One of the series. Yes. And the thing I learned was that against uh, selective hitters who swing at good pitches more often than not on average, what they choose to swing at is a good pitch. He's you know, like an average, above average starter against them. <laughs> against guys who are aggressive, he's basically turns everyone into a decent hitting pitcher. Something like a 100-point gap in, in total average, which is our TAV, aggregate hitting stat. So that was interesting. And then, you know, the Dodgers went out with their patient style and, you know, put three runs against them. I mean, it was, you know, the, the Yankees, who typically swing like crazy, in their second outing against them, they were very patient, took pitches, and it worked to their advantage. Nobody crushed them, just took them from being totally dominant to... Unhittable to a little hittable. Yeah. So he feeds on your aggression. So Keuchel is a guy who may be susceptible to just being patient and letting him pitch himself into trouble. It, it goes through all this data about out of the zone and in the zone. And, we, you know, it's kind of funny. He makes a smooth transition from, uh, you know, it's a binary thing. The pitch is in the zone or out of the zone to using our metrics at the end, uh, which is called strike probability, which is, kind of continuous distribution of the strike zone. So it's kind of 50%, 30%, 80%. And, uh, you know, at first he's like, no, I, it's, you know, Keuchel, he was worried that it wouldn't, it would ruin his story because Keuchel has a, uh, he's not that big a deal with his CS prob. He's like middle of the field, but with, with his, he, but he throws pitches out of the zone a lot. He's a really high out of the zone percentage. And I said, like, that's the point of using the continuous variable and not a discrete variable. Because, yeah, he's out of the zone, but barely. Right. So it's he's just on the edge, nibbles and, and gets, so he, gets people yes. to chase. 
yeah, like it's like it's it's important that he's that he's on the edge of the zone. And then we showed him. By the way, if you split it by pit by hitters who either, I think for uh, the 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 hitter split, I think it was something like sixty. Call strike probability of sixty percent was the was the was the you know guys whose whose average swing was on a pitch below sixty percent or a guy above sixty percent. It's just a stupid dumb split, and it was a hundred point difference in total average. And, you know, and, so I was like, that works. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it actually captures the nuance better, and that's why you know and that's why we like using that instead of in this binary thing with balls and strikes. I mean, right. basically pitchers who throw at a low called strike probability, they're going to walk more guys, but they're going to give up a lower slugging percentage. Guys who throw close to the plate or over the plate, they're going to strike out more guys and walk less guys, but they're also going to get hit harder more often, all else being equal. So it's like, it's important to not just know that they're in the zone or out of the zone, but where, right. like, is it just wild and, you know, so there's this thing we've been working on, and, and it, might, it may make it into publication at some point, but this notion that, you know, if you're a wild pitcher, but you're wild out of the zone, that's totally fine. That's like, that's that's the best. Like, that's not the best, but like, that that's okay. And then the next best thing is to just kind of, you know, like, throw strikes. Being in the middle is dangerous. Right. It's like a, that's the hard. That's a hard place. It, that's a hard place to make your living. Right. Like, but you can do it. But if you, if you have to have the command to do it, right. So the margin of error is, is so small. Yeah. Exactly. If you're wild and off the plate all the time, it's okay. You probably have the stuff. It, it goes in combination with what your stuff is, and you're pitching that way because of your stuff as well. So, so it's all this you know complicated mess. But it's just, Keuchel was just just off the edge, and he weighed him out. And you're really good at controlling the strike zone, being selective about your pitches. You, you can you can handle. Them. But if you're aggressive, if you go out there with an aggressive approach, he's going to kill you. And it's amazing, amazing the difference. So, yeah, I think recommend, that, recommend the article for sure. Even though the game is passed, it was a preview of a game that's already been played. I still think it's a good piece of research. And there there may be a, a replay of that game. We'll we'll see. But <laughs> that would be a game five matchup, right? That would be true. Yeah, so that would be interesting to see because, um, like you said last time, uh, when he pitched twice against the Yankees the first time, he dominated them, and they were aggressive, and then they waited him out, and he struggled. So um might happen again. But what was funny is the funny game first pitch home run. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was kind of like, oops, well, that's different. Yeah. yeah. But, but for the most <laughs> part, you know. <laughs> Because they're just that's the other thing. I was one thing. I was like, does he just okay? Okay, if you're going to sit out, you know, and wait, I'll throw you some fat strikes and make you expand the zone. Right. Do it. Flip. You know, just turn the game around. I mean, that's a game of adjustments. It's a beautiful thing. Anyways, that's what I learned this week that Keuchel is a monster against aggressive hitters, yep. at least for this season. Yeah, that's cool. This week. I learned, um, and it wasn't this week, it was last week, but we didn't record last week, but um, Tracy Ringlesby uh, mm-hmm. wrote a piece in um, Baseball America, I think, uh, about expansion, and um, there was more mention of baseball, Major League Baseball coming to my fair city of Portland, Oregon, and that got me really excited, and uh, it seems like... That story has legs. 
does. And, and I don't know, like... Because it wasn't really well sourced. Right. But it seems like everybody has picked it up and talked about it and talked about, oh, what? It, how would the realignment go? And, yes. you know, would we well, have, that part, yeah. you know, like four, eight team divisions or whatever. So... The, it, uh, our, our colleague Sean O'Rourke recommended uh, in very deep thought fashion that the only true rivalry is within and suggested 32 one-team divisions. Oh, I like it. I like it. So um, so I was uh, – I've always – so we um, – before we moved to Portland, we lived in the Seattle area and in Seattle proper for some period of time, and uh, that was awesome. We moved away from the Chicago area, and my criteria was – uh, mountains, water, and a baseball team. And, um, so that kind of limited our, our, our travels, but, uh, we ended up in Seattle and then we moved down here. Um, long story short, it's just a better fit for our family. Um, but one big thing was moving away from a major league baseball team. And now with the three, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want one Harry. I just want one. I am. Well, are they going to do it? Well, the, the the prospect of it, it seems like, I don't know. I mean, Rob Manfred has mentioned Portland in the past two years um, in his kind of like tour at the end of the season when he goes and talks about all these different things and talks about expansion. Portland has always been mentioned. That's exciting. It'd be nice for the Mariners not to, to, you know, to have one team that's actually close. That's what I'm so, – so I was I was thinking about this, and I was thinking – the Mariners wouldn't want to give up the territory, which is probably true. However, it would cut down on their travel costs, which would be good. And um, I would imagine uh, convincing somebody to play, like a free agent to play for the Mariners, um, would be easier if you, instead of saying every year you're going to travel more than any other team, to be able to say that's not the case anymore because now we have a wonderful team in Portland. And uh, it's just an hour flight away, and um, Kendall will come and watch you. That's right. So um, the, I learned that. I'm excited about that. I also know that there is um, a lot of local support. Um, I think there's also a lot of local opposition, which is probably the case in every city that even thinks about having any sort of major sports team, especially one like Portland, for various reasons. Um However, I do know that they have a $150 million grant that is still available municipally uh, to build a stadium. Um, they kind of did that and I think voted on it or something um, when they were trying to lure the Expos, who ended up in Washington. Um, so that's still kind of in play and they have um, a site that's right kind of downtown right by where the Trailblazers play basketball. So I have very high hopes. And uh, if anybody knows anything more specific that can give me even higher hopes, definitely um, email us at stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. That's what I learned this week. I, I wish you luck. Thank you. Me too. Uh, I, and I actually think that Portland would um, sustain a baseball team pretty well. Like, Everybody, they used to have a triple-A team, um, the Beavers, that played where the Timbers currently play. But I think a major league team would really would be good. Anyway, we'll see. 
Well, that would be. I think expansion is is inevitable, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean the the in the two two reasonable. I mean, other people probably think other teams other than Portland would be reasonable, but um, Portland and Montreal. Mm-hmm. I'd be down. Those with are that. the two most popular ones. Yeah. I, oh, look out! Holy smokes! Kenley Jansen just blew a save. Oh. Is that Marlon, Marwin Gonzalez? Hit Marwin, form, Cub, Rule 5 pick from the Cubs. He was a Cub? He was a Cubs farmhand, yeah. Really? He was left unprotected in Rule 5. Huh. He's um, always been a pretty good ball player. Yep. Well, I think we've had a good show. I think we just fed people a lot of information. Yes. And I think there's going to be a ton of follow-ups. So hopefully people enjoyed the spreadsheet. Hopefully people got some good thoughts from Jared about how the fly ball revolution really happens. Yes. And I think that's our story. Yes. We also have a new website. Oh, minor detail. <clears throat> yes. It took me some restraint because when Jarrett mentioned he's been reading the site since 1999. Yes, I know. Like, yeah, the website hadn't changed since then either. That's right. So, yeah, we uh, we launched a new website uh, a couple, week and a half ago. Yep. And um, I hope you all enjoy it. It's uh, much nicer. Kendall did a lot did a lot of the work for those people. So a lot, thank Kendall. A lot of time and effort and energy was put forth um, by folks like Rob McEwen and Justin Fox, myself, yes. various Harry, Brett, John Chenier, John Chenier, who before he left us for the Mariners, he helped on the website. Yep. So uh, a lot of a lot of people have done a lot of work, and um, yeah, we definitely hope you like it and. Um, we're going to work on the stats pages next. Yes. And so we're going to work on the sortables, people. I know they, they're they bad. We know. We know. We actually started on the sortables like a year and a half ago. We actually had a pretty good alpha. Like, you know, that's not close, but that's it was for what it was, it was good. And we set it aside to do the editorial. Yeah, it's a strategic reasoning for the business to do that. So the editorial side is all nice. We have a lot of tools and functionality to transfer over. But we're going to redesign all our sortable stat pages so you can actually enjoy the data we have and make it more accessible. More data, more accessible, and nice on mobile. So if you have input or ideas or suggestions, if you want to be a beta tester, uh, email us. Yeah. Please. So that is all, my friends. Everything old is new